welcome to this week's episode of Where Peter Is Live. I'm your host, Rachel Amiri. I'm production editor at Where Peter Is. On this weekly live stream, our panel of contributors and sometimes guests takes a closer look at some of the topics we've been talking about and writing about on our site. Thanks for joining us today. Um, Tonight, we are going to be talking about some of Pope Francis's recent moves and comments, as well as the burgeoning kind of virtual synod we're seeing emerge in the United States um, in the dialogue that various bishops are having regarding the issue of Eucharistic coherence. So tonight, I'm joined by a couple of our contributors at Where Peter Is. Um, I have David Lafferty joining us from Canada. You might recognize him from his new show, The Critical Catholic, which is here on Sunday nights. And um, stationed across the hall from me is my husband, Dan Amiri. Um, he's contributed to this website longer than I have, but um, he's joining us for the first time tonight. We don't know what our children are going to be doing, but here we are <laughs> having some adult conversation. All right, Dan, you said you were going to open us up with a prayer this evening. Yeah, that's right. And first of all, I just want to mention, you know, there's... Uh, some some sad news that we are you know we have to share with you, but Mike Lewis isn't able to join us tonight. Uh, his sister uh, tragically passed away just today. Uh, he had mentioned that on Twitter, and um, obviously a lot of people show their support for him, but um, he's not able to join us tonight. And so as we pray, just want you to uh, lift up uh, Mike and his sister and his whole family uh, in your prayers, and uh, you know keep him keep him in your prayers. Uh, so. Uh, just, uh, let's quiet our hearts and our minds. We pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, as we anticipate you sending out your Spirit, therefore forming your disciples into the seed of the Church, send out your Spirit upon us now, on all our listeners and viewers, and especially upon Mike Lewis, his whole family, as they mourn the loss of his sister, Katie. Send out your spirit of peace to bring an end to conflict around the globe and especially in the Middle East. Send out your spirit of peace, even as we wage war with ourselves in the depths of our hearts. Lord God, we pray that like your earliest disciples, the seed of faith which you have planted grows and bears fruit in the world send out your spirit nurture the seed of faith with your undying love and mercy we ask all of this through christ our lord amen in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit all right so that was a very pentecost oriented prayer dan it's very liturgically appropriate of you um i know that yeah, pentecost the feast of pentecost is coming up on sunday and it hasn't happened here yet, but in a lot of dioceses in the U.S., they're beginning to lift the dispensations that have been in place from the beginning of the pandemic um, for the faithful from the Sunday obligation to attend the mass. Um, it's usually like it's what I've heard is it's either being lifted in some places this weekend or they're kind of announcing it this weekend to go into force in June. I know that in the United States, our vaccination rates are climbing up there. And in a lot of places, most of the pandemic emergency, like public health restrictions are being lifted. I know I just went shopping in Costco for the first time without a mask the other day because you don't have to if you're fully vaccinated now. Um, but I know that in Canada, the situation is very different, David. Is it 
pretty dire where you live or what's what's happening? Yeah, well, things are actually, things are getting better in terms of the mm-hmm. um, the number of cases of COVID, but uh, it's it, the vaccine rollout has been a little slower on our end. So right now we're still in a state of emergency um, and under a stay at home order. So, um, and there's some very heavy restrictions on any type of religious worship. So um, I think most people have not been, uh, you know, going to church uh, these days. Um, so we've, we're probably going to be in this situation until, I guess, you know, early June. Um, but uh, we're going to see what happens. We're, the vaccines are, are now kind of rolling out, but it's just it's taking a, a little time. Um, so we're, we're think of us as maybe a couple months uh, behind where you guys are at. But it'll be interesting for, for me from here to see how things go in the U.S. with um, with reopening, because we'll probably face some of the same challenges. Yeah, I think the main issue, I mean, they just announced this um, at our church on Sunday even, and it's following the CDC's guide, guidelines, really, which is that if you are vaccinated, you're less of a risk to others, there's less of a risk to you. So you don't need to wear a mask, obviously. So you can go to mass without a mask, which is going to be really weird, first of all. But then that puts a lot of, you know, pressure, social pressure, even on those who haven't been vaccinated for whatever reason. And they come to mass and they they wear a mask. Are they, they going to feel like outed? I feel like there's just going to be a lot of awkward social pressure around this whole mask wearing, not mask wearing. Are you vaccinated, not vaccinated? And especially in the United States, it's been such a, unfortunately, it's been a political issue. It's been politicized whether to get vaccinated or not. And it's wrapped up with moral theology and and moralizing from certain people and so it's just it's all these issues just embedded into each other (laughs) over over mass uh in public and especially in church it's just uh you you talk about watching the u.s i'm sure it's we're gonna set a great example for you guys (laughs) well i mean i gotta say like in all seriousness though i think the the response has been very disheartening i think you know like the the whole the Catholic response in general to this pandemic, and it's not just Catholics, but, you know, the uh, people of other, you know, faiths as well, the, the way that it became so politicized, the way that first masks became politicized, and then the the vaccine became politicized. And it's true that there there are moral issues that need to be taken into consideration when, you know, when talking about the vaccines. Um, but it, the a statement from the CDF didn't have any effect on people, and it's still being pushed as if taking these vaccines is somehow morally wrong or dubious. Um, and then in some extreme cases, there are people who just are completely opposed to the vaccines and see them as, you know, harmful. So it's been it's been tough and then you know there's also been the the sort of the pushback um, against like the government on, restrictions to worship and and that's some of that is understandable but um and i think there 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 were some cases where there was real some government overreach i think but there there was also a lot of it felt like grandstanding on the part of certain people who were you know um pushing back in order to make a political point in order to you know um avoid having to go along with to go with the flow you know in terms of you know coming together to um get through the pandemic for the sake of the common good you know that's and and i wish that's what i had seen i wish that that's 
what the Catholic experience had been. All of us getting together, doing what we had to do, suffering through it and um, trying to help each other as much as we possibly could. And, and some people yeah. did that. Some people, a lot of, a lot of Catholics did that, but yeah. I, I was, it was, it was a terrible thing to me to, to see this become so polarizing. Yeah. I think that CDF document, you know, even at the time, but also in retrospect, I think was so carefully worded and I think really got to the heart of the issue. And, you know, they even still, you know, even in that CDF document, a lot of people kind of maybe extrapolate too much from it, but, they point out, you know, the, the CDF wasn't saying that everyone is like is mandated to get it's a sin not to get the vaccine or they must get the max vaccine. But, you know, the people can discern how they want to weigh all these moral evils. And, you know, I think uh, Father Matthew Schneider on, on Twitter kind of has some really great pieces along those lines. Uh, but as Paul Fahey mentioned in his recent article on this topic, you know, bring in the CDF into the discussion, you know, even if you don't get vaccinated, even if that's a moral decision that you make for yourself and how you cooperate with evil or not, there's still the second part of that moral reasoning, which is your consideration of others mm -hmm. and how you relate to others in your community and protect each other. And I think that's what Paul's piece was really getting to the heart of is if you're not vaccinated, um, you know, there is still a risk, you know, maybe you're at higher risk of transmitting the disease. So there's still some, some things you need to do to protect not only well, yourself, but other people mostly, right? And wearing a mask is one of those things. So Paul Fagan in his article kind of talked about that a lot, got to the heart of it. I think uh, it's a good article to recommend to our listeners and viewers too. I think there's really going to be a struggle um, just as reopening is happening in terms of like, how do we put our parishes and our, our Catholic communities kind of back together when they've really been polarized not at, well separated not only by the virus but polarized by this like kind of mutual suspicion and oh are you against COVID precautions oh are you for this vaccine that i'm afraid is going to hurt me and how we kind of move through this really difficult new phase um it it's it's just really fraught and we need a lot we need the holy spirit to come i think um i i was watching a conversation on Twitter today about um, some of the announcements like for reopening of the parishes, like, oh, dispensations being lifted. So everyone needs to come back to mass now. And it was very kind of like accusatory and talking about how people have been, you know, you've been far away from our Lord in the Eucharist for so long. Think about how you feel about that. And there was, um, there's a Bishop, I forget, I think in Connecticut who released a video that was really well-intentioned, like welcoming the family back to the table of the really Eucharist. Well produced too. I mean, it, was it was really <laughs> well produced, but at the same time, um, I'm really waiting to hear like that, that welcome back to mass that doesn't imply like you've been away from God for a year, you know, like because it's a little bit more complicated than that. Well, I can tell I mean, you that I have not felt far from God for the past I think year. America magazine had a great poll or uh, it was either a poll or just some research they had done, but identifying, you know, a lot of people actually grew spiritually. And that makes a lot of sense, as you can imagine, what else are you going to do during a pandemic, right? I mean, you, you kind of, you kind of reflect a lot, you get in touch with yourself, you get in touch with God. So they grew spiritually, even as they grew, you know, for not, not say grow apart from the church, but literally they were growing apart from the church. And so, um, it, it is a little bit disingenuous, I think, and, and, and sensitive to people's experiences to suggest that 
their their growth in spirituality over the last year was was not real or it it wasn't it wasn't grounded i mean you know for us i know our family prayed every sunday the spiritual communion prayer and that was an important aspect of our spirituality during the the pandemic and i'm sure people have similar experiences but i i do think that the the messaging should be more of a, a welcoming and come to the fullness and we're so so glad that we can be safe and celebrate together and and it's, it's a much more positive way of framing it than what were you doing for the last year <laughs> so yeah yeah i mean and, and you know maybe they could have like uh, events at parishes where people can come and talk about their experiences just kind of you know because we've it's been so long for a lot of people since they've had that just casual conversation with each other and why not a night where everyone can get together and talk about the things they went through the spiritual um growth or the spiritual trials that they experienced um how they feel about coming back to to you know regular mass and um you know it would be interesting to hear all those perspectives and just have them out there voice so people can talk as opposed to like this kind of you know we're lifting the dispensation you better get back it's you're not you can't can't be lazy anymore um you know like <laughs> come on like uh, people especially now because we've gone through a very i mean especially in the states you know you've gone through a very difficult politically polarizing time yeah. um if, if church, like, if, there's going to be a lot of people who felt, you know, well, I took some time away from the church and actually I didn't mind it that much, you know, it was okay. And then, and, and that's the problem. Like people are going to be like, you know, I don't really feel like going back to that. I don't want to go back to that, you know, that world. So you got to make, give people a reason to come back. That, yeah. That's the important thing. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a, we need a, it's like a re-catechesis on the importance of Sunday mass, not we're lifting the yeah. dispensation somewhere else and if you don't go it's it's yeah, yeah this is why we come to mass because it's a beautiful thing it's a wonderful thing and and again to, to his credit that bishop that you're talking about rich did incorporate some of that but it was definitely interlaced with the the where have you been kind of yeah. thing tone yeah. too so i i think uh that i think that's exactly right david i think that's the challenge is you know it's a recatechesis and it's a, a welcoming and it's a positive thing not a not an accusatory thing. And maybe, you know, we can we can look at this and, and think like, well, we learned some stuff too. We learned, you know, exactly. a lot of people had no idea what spiritual communion was before, you know, I this know. this happened. Yeah. I mean, I had, I knew about it, but I thought it was something that was only in the most extreme possible circumstances. Right. And, right. You know, like, <laughs> like, right. like this would or never, never like ever happen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 You know, but, and then all of a sudden, like you got a good chunk of the, the Catholic world, you know, mm -hmm. turning to this in order to, um, you know, have that that connection um, to the Eucharist and to church. And um, so it, it's it, that was a really profound change for me. And it, it showed that, you know, it's not just on Sundays when we go to mass that we're, you know, connected to the church. We can be connected um, in many different ways, in many different situations. Dan, you mentioned um, the America poll on kind of prayer and people's prayer practices during the pandemic. So that might be a good point to kind of bring in Pope Francis for the past year plus, really. Hasn't he been talking about prayer? He's been doing a series of Wednesday audiences on prayer, approaching it from different topics. Can you speak to like where he is in that? Yeah, no, I... I've been following it anxiously because I, I want to. I want him to be done so I can like write about it, you know, and and summarize it and present it to people. But uh, no, he he's still going. Uh, this is about a year in the making now. I just looked it up. I think his first catechesis on prayer was May sixth, 
last year, 2020. So deep in the heart of the pandemic, he launches this catechesis on prayer. And it's it's really beautiful. I mean, okay, so Francis's style, I'm sure everyone listening and, and watching is familiar with Francis's style, but let's just give him some credit here. He's very knowledgeable, very educated about the catechesis. Like he knows his stuff, but he's always anxious to connect it in some visceral way with people's experiences. And that's what, you know, from start to finish, that's what this is about. I mean, it's very theological at the beginning, you know, takes on some really uh, heavy theological topics, especially like the the liturgy of prayer and uh, Mary as the, the paragon of prayer, you know, all this really deep theological stuff, which is really enriching uh, from an intellectual perspective. But then, especially recently in the last few weeks, it's about the struggle of prayer and overcoming sloth and, and the frustrations of prayer. So it's it's gone from really theological to really, really practical. And I, I love this about his catechesis and his whole approach. It's not just, here's some teachings, accept them. It's, here's why this is so important. This is why it's so beautiful. And I offer this to you as a way to grow closer to God. And uh, it's, again, we're, I think, on the 34th Wednesday audience of this weekly catechesis. You know, there, there's been some weeks that he's been off because of the pandemic, some weeks that he's transitioned to talk about Christmas or Easter. So in total, we're a year in. It's the 34th catechesis on prayer and it's still going. I don't know. There's no no telling when it's going to stop, but it could maybe it'll be like a next theology of the body. It'll be the theology of prayer. I'm not sure. Rach, I'm sorry. I think we got we've uh, lost you there. Oops. <laughs> sorry, I was muting myself. Um, there's a post up on our site right now. That's what I was posting in the comments um, that Mike just block quoted last night from the most recent catechesis on prayer that Pope Francis gave um, about how being angry with God is a way to pray too. And it was funny. I saw some commentary on this, like now we know he's really a heretic because Pope Francis thinks that, you know, you can be angry with God and you can tell God how you really feel. And um, I don't think he's the heretic in this case, because if we look at the scriptures, you know, the Psalms and the, the book of Lamentations, they're filled with people like, in anguish crying out yeah. to god angrily sometimes or like just with deep disappointment or distress and asking god for help so if that's where we get in our prayer like you know god can take your your anger and maybe that's what we need right now to be told is you know after a year of the pandemic god can take your like anger frustration discomfort irritability with all of it and and help you with that well the, the whole point is that you know as francis talks about you know, if, if being angry is what gets you to talk with God, then be angry with God. You know, the worst thing you can do is not talk to God, to not bring him your experiences, not express your frustrations. And the, I mean, obviously you plan on moving past that. I mean, you, your entire relationship can't be built on anger, but uh, it's important to voice that. And it's not like you can hide it from him. You know, he knows, he knows you're angry at him. So it's just to, that, that, expression and francis is phrases this beautifully it's about that establishing of that uh father son father daughter relationship again it's it, and i can tell you that my my daughter and i have some um uh, battles at time we get angry at each other and i think it's just that beautiful image of you know you just get if you at least can just express your views even if it's angrily then then god can work with that god can transform that into an avenue of grace i think it's i think it's beautiful 
I, I agree. I, I love Pope Francis's approach to prayer and he's made it such a, an incredible priority. I mean, he really seems to place that um, at, you know, first, it, it, first and foremost in the Christian life, right? Like this is, if you're not praying, something is very, very wrong. Um, and, and I take that to heart because it's something that I sometimes have trouble with. Right. Um, so, but I, I agree that, you know, this, father-son father-daughter relationship that you establish with god when you're angry with god or when you're um you know it's it's very different from the attitude of you know piety and reverence that some people think should be the only you know it seems some people think should be the only way to, to pray um and uh but it it shows this incredible intimacy and i mean i think there was other times when pope francis talked about how, you know, we shouldn't be afraid to, you know, feel like children around God, like to, you know, just be with God, and like a, like a child is just enjoys being around their parent. Um, and I think we need, we need maybe more of that. And I know I need more of that in my prayer life. Um, it's something that uh, uh, I, I, I need, I need to take that time to just be with God or to, um, you know, express some of my inner frustrations and, and, and not make things too formulaic, not make things too routine. I, I really recommend to um, Father James Martin's uh, recent prayer, uh, recent book on prayer called Learning to Pray. It's something, it's a book that I reviewed on wherepeteris.com. And, you know, he's not, he's not Pope Francis, you know, they have different kind of ways of thinking about things and working through things. But I found that book really helpful as a way to uh, understand prayer from a variety of different ways. And, you know, Father Martin, you know, defends, wrote prayer, you know, defends that sort of very formulaic approach. But then he also talks about the importance of meditation and poetry and and finding God in nature. And so it's like an anything and everything approach to prayer. And the way he walked through it, I thought was really instructive and engaging he tells a lot of a lot of fun stories he's an interesting person for sure so I, uh, i'd like to uh, read I, that I'd like, yeah. yeah no it's it's a good it's a good book and i, I certainly recommend it it's to, a long book it's yeah really? but it, it yeah. goes quick i mean it's like someone telling you a story i mean you just you go through it so quick so uh it wasn't it wasn't uh, a hard read at all it wasn't dense at all it was a really fun uh 400 and some pages so. yeah. wow <laughs> good but that's, that's, I like that he takes that approach that, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with rote prayer either. Like, I mean, like I find the rosary, you know, very profound. I, I, I It's always been like a real source of consolation for me. I know for other people, maybe especially people who were brought up in an environment where they were kind of like forced to do it at school or they, you know, like that sort of thing, they have these bad memories attached to it. And so it, it's not as, it doesn't have the same effect for them. So that you got to find a different, a different way to, um, to pray. That, yeah. That. yeah, but what, the, what works for you is what's important. Yeah, and that's where the liturgical aspect of prayer comes in. Sorry, not to dwell on this point too long, but I just it came up because it was a, a recent one. But Pope Francis, it was his February third catechesis, praying in the liturgy, and so that's I think it's about this. And when you pray, you're not just praying yourself, but you're also praying with the community and and sort of the liturgical experience of prayer and praying the prayers of liturgy is also really important because you, you do pray. It's the same, it's the prayer of the church. And uh, those are, I find that really helpful as I've tried to build the habit of praying morning and evening prayer. It's, uh, it's an important, it's an important part of my prayer life to keep that in mind too. 
Well, we should also so turn to some other things that Pope Francis has been up to lately. I feel like he's been very busy. I don't know if there's a lot to keep up with. Um, but last week, our listeners may have heard that he instituted a new lay ministry of catechists. Um, this is an altogether new thing. This is not something that had been in existence before, but via a motu proprio, the Pope can do that. Um, so he instituted this new lay ministry and it's the language I found was very similar to the language he used to describe um, the institution of this ministry of lector and acolyte and the opening of it to women um, in another motu proprio a couple of months ago called Spiritus Domini, but I wrote about that on the site. So if anyone wants to deep dive into that, they can go read it. Um, but a lot of it was the same rationale. Like it's um, a stable service rendered to the local church by like worthy lay people who have been properly formed and trained um, and then authorized by their bishop and pastor to engage in this work. So it really is kind of emphasizing the importance of catechesis for the local church and the formation of catechists. Um, and then speaking of it as a specifically lay activity, um, because he's, he, in the motu proprio talks about how lay people are kind of in this role straddling their secular and then kind of this more religious realm of their efforts. And so what is proper to the laity is working in the secular world and they're forming other lay people. Um, but this is a different, a slightly different task for the lay people to engage in. Um, and then towards the end of it, I really um, liked how he said that Bishop should make every effort to comply with um, the exhortation of the Council of Fathers in Vatican II. And then he um, points back to a quote from Lumen Gentium where he quotes him as saying, pastors know that they were not established by Christ to undertake by themselves the entire saving mission of the church to the world. So he doesn't want bishops and pastors to think this is only for priests to do. Catechesis is for everyone and especially lay people. They have an important role. Um, and this is just reflective of where the world is today. I think um, in the post-Vatican II church, you know, 60 years later, we have not as many priests and nuns teaching about the faith. And th these roles have been filled by lay people, most many, many, many lay women. Like I think we all can think of our religious education teachers and Catholic school teachers, lots of women fulfilling um, these roles for the church. And so it just kind of points to Francis's vision, I think, for the post-Vatican II church. We're kind of seeing that that the seeds planted for the future where there will be more of a diversity of lay ministries and different roles um, being fulfilled by lay people that are really recognized by the church. And um, I know that there's a lot of criticism of this as like clericalism and new clothing and stuff, but he is very keen to avoid that. So he, he warns about it in both this document and in the past one about how we should be wary of clericalization. This is not clericalization. This is recognizing and authentic ministry. So we will have some more coverage of this on the site in the coming weeks. We have some things in the works on that. So, but we just wanted our viewers to be aware <laughs> of that. Um, and then there was another really interesting little talk that Pope Francis gave today um, in Rome. He went, and, I guess he can be out and about now, which I found was interesting. Um, he had visited this school, which I hadn't read an article about Pope Francis visiting anywhere in a while. Um, but it was the Scolas Ocurrentes, which is like a, a youth program that was founded 
by Pope Francis in the last few years, and there's chapters all over the world. Um, but he went and visited this group and addressed them. And he, I'm, I'm guessing people will see some headlines about this because he talks about war as the defeat of politics. And he, um, he says that the test of politics is whether it leads to war, because theoretically, if you're engaged in politics well, then you will avoid getting to where you're shooting each other, which would be war. Um, but he also uh, said something that kind of points to some things we've seen in the US. He says, I say sincerely, it hurts my heart when I see priests blessing weapons. Instruments of death are not blessed. So he's reiterating some of the statements he's made throughout his pontificate, really, against the arms trade, against war. He's Pope Francis, he's pacifist through and through. Um, but I, I thought this was interesting, the way he talked about political love and peace in this, in some of these comments. So I know it, it kind of echoes what we've heard from Pope Francis elsewhere. I didn't know, Dan, I think you had some thoughts on, on where else we've <laughs> heard him say things like this. No, yeah, no, I think uh, Fratelli Tutti is this in a nutshell, really. I mean, it's, he talks about it at length in terms of political love. Um, which is, a, a, I think it starts at 180, hold on, I have it up here, but, uh, or 186, the exercise of political love. I mean, it's, I think it's an idea that politics as a form of love may be something that a lot of people, especially in the United States, are uncomfortable with. It doesn't seem like love and politics go together in any way whatsoever. Uh, but I think what Francis has in mind is that when when people engage in politics, they're really looking out, they should be looking out for the common good, for the good of all in a community. And politics is really the art of of achieving the good for a community. So it's it's really an act of love. And in fact, I think, Rachel, I don't know if it's there or in, in Fratelli Tutti, but he talks about it being almost the the highest form of love or... Um, that that is, must be in Fratelli Tutti. Okay, yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of like it's a noble exercise of charity. That's what he says. And um, it's, it's really about everyone in the community. So it is the, it is a kind of high form of charity too, but the way that we often go about it. And as Francis was talking about here, it, it doesn't often feel that way. It doesn't actually often, it isn't often that way where people actually put other people first and then they, um, they're, they think in factions or they think in tribes or they think in, what can I do for my people or the people that have voted for me? Um, but true politics, I think, is the art of achieving the common good for everyone. It's, just, it's very difficult. <laughs> and, and, and it's it's incredible how his statement there that um, uh, war is the defeat of politics. That's what, I think that's what he said, right? Mm -hmm. um, how it stands in opposition to, there's a, there's a famous phrase or uh, saying by Karl von Clausewitz, um, the theoretician of, uh, of war. And he said, war is the continuation of politics by other means. So, mm -hmm. so what he's saying is that politics is war. You're always going to be, it's always about battle. It's always about trying to defeat the enemy. Um, sometimes you have to take it into the realm of actual battle, um, right? That, now, Pope Francis is coming from an entirely different angle, um, which is that, you know, politics is a form of love. It's uh, it's a form of, like you said, trying to um, 
uh, shape, um, I guess, the policies of the, the state towards the benefit of the common good and especially the, the marginalized, the, um, the poor. And uh, the idea of this, the idea of politics being at heart um, uh, a battle or some kind of, of war that you have to fight. But we've been going through a period, I think, in the whole around the world where this idea has been sort of prominent we see it in a lot of the uh populist politicians who um you know some of them hark back to there's a, a theoretician named carl schmidt who uh you know said that the, at the root of politics is the distinction between friend and enemy so um that's what it's all about it's distinguishing friends from enemies and that permeates all of politics there's nothing outside of that but i think pope francis is offering a, a, an entirely different vision um you have to start with the idea that politics is not about battle it's not about establishing who's on your side and who's on the other side it's about um working in love through political means um to achieve a goal that's um rooted in love and uh, and if you start with that um then hopefully you'll, you'll never reach that point of of war you'll never reach that point um where uh politics can go no further and and you have to just give in to the uh the forces of war i think this is a big challenge for francis and you know for Tutti echoes a lot of what he said in evangelic guardian which was his first main document um well, there's Lumen Fide, but this is like Evangelii Gaudium is sort of like the trajectory of his papacy. And uh, and here he talks about uh, a few different things, but I think uh, one is that unity prevails over uh, conflict, and then also time is greater than space. So there's these two principles that I think he's trying to bring together in Fratelli Tutti when it comes to politics. And um, the first thing is that somewhat, somewhat surprisingly, he says that uh, peace is achieved in respectful conflict. So there's obviously a way that you can stifle debate or to be afraid of debate or uh, to be afraid of people being angry at each other or in conflict. And Francis isn't Francis himself isn't afraid of that. I mean, he, he welcomes this idea of conflict and people coming together and, and, and voicing their views, maybe a little bit of an echo of that conversation and prayer we were talking about earlier. You know, get it out there, voice your opinion, but always respectfully, right? You could be you could be emotional, you could be angry, but respectfully. Because the idea is that if you if you come together and at least are, are working through these issues together, uh, there is at least a chance for peace and unity. Whereas if you're just gonna you know sit here on one side while these people sit over here on the other side and, and kind of lodge comments back and forth but never really talk that, that's not that's not politics that's what you're talking about it's friend and enemy it's tribalism and uh it sort of devolves uh another topic it starts at 193 but he talks about fruitfulness over results and this is something that affects each of us i think but on the political stage it can be especially hard to do which is that you know, in some cases, the process is more important than the results you get in the near term. You know, there's a lot of ways to get results in the near term, and violence is one of those. You know, it's easy to gain power using violence, either the threat of violence or actual violence, war, or any other means. But that's not 
acceptable. You know, the Catholic Church rejects that, any form of violence. And so in some cases, we need to be patient. We need to work through these issues, understanding that when we work together in love, when we work together for a common good together, um, eventually we will attain, we'll get closer to peace. And now he says that we'll never really attain peace once and for all. It's never, it's never like a final process. It's a never ending process, but um, at least we can work towards that together. And that's, that's honestly, it's probably more important than, than trying to achieve results in the near term. Yeah. What struck me about what he said in these comments today was that he focused on the universality of the inclusion in in the political process of everyone. So he's he said love is political that is social for everyone. So he's emphasizing that's for everyone. And when this universality of love is missing, politics fails and becomes sick or bad. So he's saying it's not just like the majority, it's not just the powerful, it's not just those on our side. It is everyone needs to be included in this process. And how do we include everyone in a process where everyone doesn't already agree? <laughs> this is the fundamental question. And that's what politics needs to resolve. And Pope Francis's approach is always rooted in uh, prayerful respect that leads to authentic dialogue. And so he reiterated that today. Um, he, he called for dialogue because different opinions are the key in politics, which must always aspire to unity and harmony. So really the goal is not to assert power over another person, which is the modern <laughs> vision of politics. It is to convince and to draw together in unity and harmony. Um, and yeah, this echoes Fratelli Tutti, like, like Dan has been saying, but this unity in, in diversity and in harmony that's achieved through authentic dialogue is really what Francis repeats and repeats. And there's still, there's a lot of resistance to this, not only in the political realm, but we see it in the church as well. Um, so we were we were gonna kind of shift at this point into talking about the resistance we're seeing um, to really this vision of dialogue and unity. Um, there was a column in First Things today um, by Archbishop Chaput um, about the current kind of um, disputes over Eucharistic coherence in the United States. And he explicitly expressed some skepticism about this dialogue-based approach. Um, he actually said, I'm trying to pull up the quote. Um, it's Rome's Cardinal Louis Ladaria that now counsels a more patient approach on the matter of communion politicians with more dialogue and discussion as if that strategy hadn't already been tried and failed repeatedly for the last four decades. So there's a little bit of resistance to an approach of, of dialogue and discussion and, and moving forward in peace and harmony, which, you know, I kind of, I understand the skepticism, you know, I understand the like accusations that maybe this sounds a little utopian, like, are we ever going to get there in, in unity and harmony? But I'm not sure that that's Francis's vision. I'm not sure that, no. I saw a head shake. No, I mean, he, yeah. he recognized. Well, okay, let's be honest. Like, he, he does acknowledge that some of what he says seems a little bit idealistic, a little bit of utopian. But I think when you 
don't work for that like that's what francis is saying like it might seem utopian but if you give up our vision of utopia if you give that up completely then you sort of devolve into things which are not acceptable so you know francis is real you know he, he's self-aware he realizes it sounds a little bit crazy but you can't give it up <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean he's you know in, in fratelli 2d he talks about you know we need to use the weapons of dialogue so this is he's changing the whole way we conceive of <laughs> how we you know engage on a, a political level so it's it, moving yeah. forward he talks about you know raising your children to be people of dialogue not kind of christian warriors who are gonna go out there and, and crush those who oppose the church or you know that sort of thing but people who are going to go out there and dialogue with with other people um who, who don't think like them and um and engage in that process that and it's a long process i think that's the thing it's it's like you know it it, it may not generate immediate results like the but the fruitfulness over time um could amount to uh you know profound change and rachel i don't know if i i didn't get a chance to read that first things article but is he saying that dial like the dialogue he's referring to is the dialogue between his brother bishops like the dialogue of his brother bishops or i know dialogue he, in the church he is referring to the dialogue being recommended to the bishops to engage in with catholic politicians who oh, hold okay. views at odds with the church's teaching on abortion and other okay. grave yeah because issues. i mean yeah, like you said, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of skepticism you can have there, but you can't you can't give up that dialogue. But I think one of the things that Ladar has pointed out is sort of the dialogue among brother bishops too, and, yes. and how that's sort of been waged out. You know, that's that's how it's sort of been carried out on the public stage, and that's the sort of dialogue that I think a lot of people aren't comfortable with or. Um, you know, the way that these bishops are more or less calling each other out on media that's that's that seems to be maybe not in line with francis's vision either <laughs> I don't know. yeah well the the letter that cardinal ladaria or the cdf sent to archbishop gomez of the usccb really outlined this process that they wanted the u.s bishops to engage in to kind of arrive at some sort of agreement on how to handle this very thorny question. Um, and it was outlining a process. It wasn't telling them what to do. And it was very Franciscan in its vision. Like it was, it, it fit Francis's vision as we've been describing it of beginning processes, not expecting immediate results. And that's what these responses are a different sort of process. It seems like to me. <laughs> yeah. The, um, as far as I understand it, the process that Ladaria laid out would be one where the bishops get together, they come to at least some kind of near unanimity on um, the necessity for creating some kind of national policy, and they establish, you know, what the um, uh, parameters of that are. Then they enter into dialogue with um, pro-choice Catholic politicians or, or Catholic politicians who do not uphold um, particular teachings of the church. You can't um, say pro-choice if you're the CDF though. Oh yes, I, they get in trouble for saying pro- you're but not you see, supposed to use the language. One, <laughs> one, one, of the, one of the marks of dialogue, and this is used in, you know, in 
interreligious dialogue as well, is you try to use the terms that the other people use in order mm -hmm. to establish common ground. So if you come in there and say and call them pro-death politicians or something, you know, like it's it's not going to work. That's you're coming in there with uh, an oppositional attitude and you're trying to frame the argument a particular way. So you, you, you use the, the language they use, try to establish common ground, all that kind of stuff. If all that still doesn't work out, then you try to formulate a national policy on worthiness uh, to receive communion that would apply, I believe, not just to politicians, but to pretty much everyone. Um, and it would have to focus on the full range of Catholic teaching. It couldn't just focus only on abortion or euthanasia um, or you know, gay marriage or whatever the, the kind of hot button issues of the time are. It has to focus on everything. So I really can't see them pursuing that um, because again, that would take effort, dialogue. <laughs> um, it would, you know, it, it may end up, it doesn't fulfill, I, I mean, I may be cynical, I do see this as, as very political in nature. I think it's um, the, like what Chaput is doing here. Um, the the timing of this is um, where it becomes political. I, I understand that 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 uh, you know such a thing does have a justification in Catholic teaching, but um, it's not something that has a lot of precedent in you know recent decades or in other parts of the world. So it's all of a sudden come up months after um, the election of Joe Biden and the defeat of Donald Trump, right? So it's um, it's coming at probably the most politically charged time, you know, in the US in a very long time. And so to then thrust this in the middle of that, I think, you know, he, Chaput talks about, he says, making the wrong kind of mess. He says, you know, he talks about how Pope Francis thinks, you know, we should go out there and make a mess. And I think what Pope Francis means is, you know, go out there and, you know, talk with people and, you know, don't, don't be kind of locked up in your, in your own little ideological world, you know, like, you know, get out there and, and just start doing stuff. Um, whereas Chaput thinks the kind of mess that um, they should be making is one it sounds like one that would just split the church um, and basically try to show who's a real Catholic and who's not. Because if you if you say if you deny um, communion to let's say Pelosi or Biden, you're you're also you're not just commenting on them. You're commenting on all the people who voted for them and supported them, um, and you're saying they're like somehow lesser Catholics. Maybe they should be. Um, barred from communion as well. There's a whole can of worms that opens up and it would be quite a mess, but I think it would be a, an incredibly politicized mess. And that's what I think um, they want to avoid uh, in, in the Vatican. Yeah, that's, just, that's, that's just my position, but yeah. No, no, I think it's just, it's really unfortunate because, you know, from tracking the recent history, but, you know, there's Ratzinger's letter in 2002. Um, there's John Paul II, he wrote, encyclical on the Eucharist in 2003, I believe. And then there was um, uh, Parasita in 2007, which talks about Eucharistic coherence um, and and then so on and so on. I mean, it's and even Francis and Amoris Laetitia talks about Eucharistic coherence. In fact, that's basically what chapter eight is all about. So it's, in, in my mind, it's not, you know, it's unfortunate because it's the partisan political nature of it, you know, where has this been? <laughs> you know, where, you know, where is the issue been? And of course it's been 
in the background a little bit, but just all of a sudden, you know, it's 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 this this huge issue of national importance. Meanwhile, you know, William Barr, Catholic, speaks at all these big Catholic events. Is this guy who's reinstated the federal death penalty? Where was the Eucharistic coherent conversation when he came out with that policy, or when when that was instituted? Mm-hmm. So there 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 wasn't. He really was signing a, death warrants. He, literally, I mean, so I, I just no. I mean, maybe not literally, but the response the response to that from a lot of people would be that well, um, you know, abortion is not like the death penalty. You know, like so, you know, it's going to be ten to twelve people or something who die because of the death penalty compared to the you know millions upon millions um, that die because of abortion, right? Um, and so. They use the the proportionality argument, and that's and part of that is this idea that was established um, by the USCCB of the sort of preeminence doctrine. This idea that um, abortion is a preeminent priority, therefore, concerns over abortion supersede um, concerns over other moral issues. So, um, there, I think the you know Chaput and, and Cordelioni and people like that they're following from this idea of. Uh, the preeminent priority of abortion. Um, but I've never seen anything in Pope Francis that would justify that idea. Of course, Pope Francis is is anti-abortion. He thinks it's, um, you know, he thinks it is a, a really in- incredibly important issue. Um, but he also has maintained over and over again, you can't separate these things. You can't just make other issues negotiable. Um, there's we can't do that as Catholics, and that's that's the challenge that we're we're facing. Yeah, and I think the one document that I think really speaks well to this is actually his uh, Gaudete et Exultate, the sort of an underrated ex- exhortation on prayer and, and discernment, but in personal holiness. But in there, he talks about abortion and uh, and how it relates to other issues. And his his answer to the question, you know, is abortion the preeminent? issue isn't no it's yes but also all these other issues <laughs> you know everything everything is is important everything <laughs> yeah. is preeminent and not, not, that, that's a little that's Eminent. a little bit disingenuous <laughs> not everything is preeminent but you know there's a lot of grave evils in our society of which abortion is a very very prominent and serious one but in the pursuit of that you can't ignore all these other really important critical issues and in fact if you get one of those wrong then you're likely to get the other ones wrong too, or at least have very inconsistent and coherent approach that isn't persuasive to anyone. So it's he's Francis is really all about yes and also. <laughs> it's it's an all above approach, and I think that's what um, you know McElroy in his letter was trying to to tease out a little bit. I personally I think could have been worded better, but he was trying to get to the heart of the issue here, which is what we're talking about here. Abortion, yes, but also racism. You know, that's a that's a serious issue that's impacted millions in the United States alone. So let's think about that a little bit more. Let's dive into that. What about politicians who uh, are not uh, uh, who, who just don't take the issue seriously or, or are passing policies that are um, somewhat racist? So that's that's an important conversation to have. And he pointed that out. Now, McElroy's approach is ultimately, you know, the Eucharist is here not as a matter of personal worthiness. Everyone's unworthy to receive. So all is welcome. But I think we could dive into that more later in future articles. I got one in the works. But um, I think that conversation with McElroy and Cordelione and, and Aquila, and there's, there's, you just go across the board and there's this really kind of 
intense conversation among the bishops in the United States about this. And it's it's somewhat surprising, I guess. I don't know. A lot of people weren't expecting that, but they're they're sort of waging the synod over media, which I don't it doesn't seem appropriate or maybe it is appropriate. Maybe we should welcome the transparency. I don't know what you guys think. Well, it's it's very funny, actually, how um, Chaput, when he in his article today, he that came out today, he starts by this is kind of a standard thing now. He starts by slamming the Germans and basically accusing them of, you know, defying the CDF and all this stuff. And um, and that's become a sort of standard thing in the conservative Catholic world. <laughs> right right before you're about to defy the CDF or, you know, like, <laughs> Slam you, know, yeah. you have to kind of like weird. divert attention to the Germans and then, <laughs> and then you can go ahead and um, launch into your, you know, critique of the CDF. So um, I think, I think there's a lot to be said for the idea that we are seeing, um, you know, the same thing happening in in uh, in the U.S. that we're seeing in, in Germany in some ways. Uh, it's a, a dialogue that could be good. Like there are like, you know, so, like Pope Francis wants this kind of, uh, uh, probably pronouncing it wrong, but the parhesia, right? Like the, so the, um, the idea that we're supposed to, you know, speak our minds. Um, boldness, and yeah. Boldness, Make yeah. a mess. Yeah, make a mess. <laughs> Making a mess, getting out there, saying what we think, right? <laughs> Um, yeah. But what he's, you know, very sensitive about is when these things become uh, highly ideological and they become like organized campaigns, more like politics than um, people actually expressing what they feel. And I think you can see that in both Germany and the U.S. In Germany, it's much more on the progressive side of things, right? Like there's um, everyone's kind of on board with a, a very progressive view of the church and it, it often devolves into a progressive ideo ideology. And within the, the U.S. church, there's a very, at least a very strong faction that is, you know, deeply conservative and uh, and it that sometimes falls into the realm of ideology. And I think we see it, we see it play out. Um, I mean, I'm kind of optimistic that both of these things will work out in the end that, um, you know, that something good will come out of it. Um, but I think in both cases, this is not quite what Pope Francis had in mind when he talked about things like synodality and um, like a new kind of openness. Um, but maybe it'll, maybe it'll get there somehow on both sides. It's a little <laughs> tricky because, you know, the USCCB is meeting in June and they're supposed to take up this question as of right now is what I've, been hearing and so it's almost like this this reminds me so much of the recent sentence we had on, on amazon and on the family several years ago where in the lead up there was kind of all this jockeying for media coverage of your perspective and then kind of team making and bandwagoning with certain you know critiques and criticisms of things that were happening and we're seeing that kind of play out here as well um leading up to a bishops meeting, which I'm not sure if we're going to hear transparently from the bishops meeting, like say they vote on something or there is a discussion like that's where I would want there to be transparency is, oh, you know, we had these these bishops spoke. They they had a prearranged amount of time to make their case. They had some kind of dialogue. It was very frank. You know, if we had that happen, not this kind of I'm going to publish this in First Things and this in America and this in Catholic World Report. And now I'm going to respond. And it it doesn't have as as clean of a look as I think that we would like. <laughs> um, it, it is involving this dialogue. 
yeah. it is involving the laity, which I guess yeah. is um, good, good in a way, but you know. In I was going to say, I think that the, the role of the laity here is really, I think, the question. And it reminds me a little bit about the Amazon Senate and the lead up to Francis publishing his exhortation. But, you know, there's that whole controversy with, with Cardinal Sarah and, and Ignatius Press and publishing this book on, uh, with quote unquote, with Pope Benedict on, on the celibacy of the priesthood. And it was just, it felt like it was weighing the scales, you know, it was trying to put, um, trying to weigh the scales of the lady and in terms of how they would receive anything that Francis would write on the issue of celibacy in the priesthood. And of course, Francis in his exhortation completely avoided the question, but I think he sensed that ideology. He sensed there was somewhat of a ideological approach here that, that um, he wasn't gonna touch. And I think he, he talked about that in, in some, some contemporaneous articles and, and comments, but um, it, yeah. it seems like that today too with the USCCB. You know the role of the laity. What is what is how are they supposed to react when bishops publish these things on First Things or or wherever it might be on America? They or when your bishop is telling you to read something that a bishop in another diocese wrote that, yeah. or another bishop's telling you to read something they wrote that disagrees with what your bishop is saying. How so are you supposed? It? to? Yeah, like what are you yeah. what are you supposed to do? Like what is the yeah. what are the laity supposed to do? And let's just say the USCCB comes out one way or the other. If you if you live in a diocese where that bishop is and he's still very vocal, like, like what what is the role of the laity here? And it, it it seems to me that you know if you want to empower the laity, like the Vatican Vatican II talks about, if you want the laity to be co-responsible, then that also means that you educate them, not like play them a little bit. You know, like these these the way that they publish these articles and they and. Uh, try to leverage viewpoints. It just seems like they're trying to play the lady, they're trying to, trying to play the church off one another to gain power ahead of a decision that they have to make. And that's the very cynical view I have, but that where, where it's also seems to be in conflict with the, the, the need for dialogue that Francis talks about. It doesn't seem like we're having a dialogue. It seems like we're, we're engaged in power struggles and it's hard to avoid that. That's, that's a really good point, I think. Um that you know it really seems like we're being manipulated in some ways but it also shows that there's a lot of people in the institutional church who realize that the laity are very important now um that have a lot of power like a lot of these issues maybe in the past they would have gone on kind of in you know back rooms and you know like among bishops and, and that sort of thing or, or in the you know the, the curia and the vatican um but now it's playing out in the media because they want you know <laughs> they want the the laity to actually know what's going on and to respond to this stuff so in a sense it's it's negative that that we we're, they seem to be playing us in, in many ways but in another way it's good because it shows that we're important like we're we actually um have an influence on the way the the church uh goes and and what's happening in the church and I wish that that would be respected, I guess, in how the dialogue is engaged in. Like, the dialogue I want to hear between bishops is maybe saying, you know, Archbishop Cordeleone, who is the pastor of Nancy Pelosi in San Francisco, I would not like to hear your opinion on what Archbishop Gregory should do. I would like to hear what you have done pastorally with 
Nancy Pelosi, how you have engaged with her and what you have learned from that process that might be transferable elsewhere or to other situations. And instead I see like his response, his written response in an essay to like Nancy Pelosi's comments, which is not really, that's not really pastoral to have these like intellectual argument. That's not yeah. pastoring. And, that's and use the thing. <laughs> use the fact that, you know, Biden and Pelosi and quite a lot of Democrats, it seems anywhere, are, are Catholic, use that as a way to engage them and to kind of draw them into a conversation about fundamental values, rather than as an opportunity to, you know, exclude them from the church, right? So I, I don't think that that's been tried yet. I really haven't seen that kind of dialogue where you get like, you know, representatives of like say conservative representatives of the Catholic Church sitting down with pro-lay or sorry pro-choice Catholic politicians actually having a talk you know where they're you know looking at this the problem of abortion within the larger context of what's going on in the country and you know there, there could be so much you know room for fruitful discussion here um but unfortunately the the bridge is just it's it's very very far and difficult to cross I think at the moment but Unfortunately, it just seems like abortion is one of those issues that it has distorted U.S. politics, and it's also really distorted how we view each other in the church and how we engage with these sorts of questions. These are it's a very serious concern. Like, it, there's that's no, why, it's that's so why it's great. such a big like, deal. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's yeah. it is a big deal, and yeah. the the legal circumstances in the United States are not going to get any less fraught anytime soon, especially yeah. with the Supreme Court case coming up. That's yeah there's going to be oral arguments for it and the decision next year. So I would anticipate this really coming to a head. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so we should all kind of prepare ourselves, but I, I really do hope that some of our bishops in the United States do heed kind of the vision that's being laid out for them by Pope Francis and his CDF to kind of just orient the discussion. But I think that's the best we can hope for. Is we can hope. Yes. All right. Well, I think that's all we have for tonight. Um, hopefully we will be back next week. Um, we have a few guests already slated for then. So we will see if Mike Lewis is back with us next week. We're not sure. Um, but if you enjoyed this show, please be sure to share it from wherever you're watching. If you're listening in the future, make sure you're subscribed to our feed so you get all the episodes of Where Peter Is Live and David's new show, The Critical Catholic. They all appear in that same feed. Um, on wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what we do at Where Peter Is and you would like to support us, we would really appreciate your Patreon subscription if you would like to um, find that link. It's on our website. And that's all we have for you tonight. So thanks everyone. And we'll see you later. Bye.